Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Just head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, National Geographic is looking for a senior design editor for National Geographic magazine in Washington, D.C. And Ebi Wawa is looking for a UX UI designer. This position is in the Washington, D.C. area, but is also open to remote candidates. For just $99, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days and will spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual Global Creativity Conference, and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other, plus it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention that it was free? (laughs) Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Derek Fields, assistant professor at Northwestern University in Chicago and the founder of Waking Oni Games. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah. My name is Derek Fields, and I'm the founder and studio director or game director of Waking Oni Games, also the assistant professor at Northwestern University teaching 3D modeling and game design. Nice. I'd ask how your 2021 has been so far, but I mean, that sounds like a pretty big, you know, kind of announcement right there, teaching at Northwestern. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. 2021 has been a series of transitions formerly before leaping into Northwestern this year. I was the lead artist over at Uplift Games, which is responsible for a really popular Roblox game by the name of Adopt Me. And so it was a significant portion of my life being able to create a title that contributed to kids. But now I uh, get to teach some of those children in an academic setting and all the while working on games and creating projects for myself. Nice. So I guess as you kind of settle into your new role, do you have any other sort of plans that you might have had for the rest of this year? One is sort of in the oven, or I should say, I'm thinking of a pun that doesn't sound so morbid. I, I'm not <laughs> sure I like. I'm not sure I like in the oven. The package is on the way. My partner and I are, are expecting a little one in November, and so it's been a lot of at home sort of nesting and preparation as we invite a small human into our lives, or another small human into our lives, I should say. Oh, congratulations! Look at you. <laughs> new you. job, new human. I mean, <laughs> 2021 sounds like it's your year. It has been my year. 
I am very thankful. Tell me about the Northwestern gig. How did you get that? Sure. So through some work it, prior to uh, working at Uplift, I had always maintained doing some freelance work and working on side projects and, and other projects. It's like sort of simultaneous, you know, balancing a lot of plates there. The one that came along was through a friend and colleague who was creating a grant funded project out of Northwestern. And they were at the time the assistant professor who held the position. And so I have done some talks with him and his class and, and met some of the students to discuss aspects of game design and 3D modeling. And a little later on, this individual ended up leaving the position for another university out of state. And so I was very surprised to see an email arrive from Northwestern asking if I would be interested in interviewing for the position. Mm. And that's when I carried on the discussion with, with the same individual who was leaving the position. And he was um, very excited that they ended up reaching out off of his recommendation. And so yeah, from there, it was a lot of paperwork. I did a job talk, which was new to me, uh, which kind of feels like giving a TED talk to other teachers, faculty and students, and to discuss the aspects of why I would enjoy teaching what I hope to bring to the space and sharing bits about my past. And yeah, everything worked out for the better. And so I'll be starting with them in September. Nice. Is this kind of your first foray into academia? I've always been uh, sort of on the periphery of the space doing other conversations. Uh, I've done some talks over at the University of Chicago in their media and arts design lab, I, I believe the name is. So yeah, I, always kind of tangential to the space. But yeah, this will be the first time that I'll be responsible for my own class, my own syllabi, and a handful of students in that capacity. Prior to, I am a, uh, a board member of the Japanese Arts Foundation, where before we transitioned into this quarantine and pandemic state, I was teaching how to draw anime classes to people of all ages. And so education has always been a, a really important component. And so I've been very fortunate to be able to provide that in certain spaces. And this really just kind of became the crux of it all. Very nice. That should be a really good gig. I mean, I don't know. Forgive me for saying gig. I used to be a musician years ago, so I call every job a gig. But um, <laughs> I, I um, use that too. Yeah, but uh, no, that should be a really good thing to kind of settle into, especially because I remember just when I was in school, like 20 plus years ago, goodness, this kind of stuff wasn't really taught. Like I didn't go to a, a art school. I just went to a regular liberal arts school. And, mm -hmm. you know, I know now technology al has allowed for so many different types of things to be taught. So it's really good that you're going to be able to teach this because I would imagine, you know, this is probably you kind of passing that knowledge on from your own personal experience with, with 3D design. Absolutely. Hopefully being able to lens an avenue for students who are interested in that space and give them, you know, direct feedback based on my experience within the industry, I, I think is going to be uh, really great. And I'm excited to be able to share that. Nice. Uh, let's talk about Waking Oni Games. How did you decide to start your own studio? Where did that come from? Right. So I was, I think, de definitely mid-store at the beginning of some freelance work. And some years after, I, I would say, I, I, I don't even know at this point, but uh, definitely some time after would be a more accurate description, some time after university and not finding the sort of career placement that I wanted in games that I had grown to expect, I started mingling with other friends and we got to brainstorming about what would it be like to create our own project and what type of experience could we get out of that just with limited resources. And at this time, it was just myself, my friend and, and a, a friend of his. And so just the three of us, uh, whom is now a, a very great friend of mine as well. The three of us, we were brainstorming, we played around and, and I said, uh, <laughs> we should, so pausing real quick to, to rewind just a tad, but Spirited Away, the Ghibli film directed by Hayao Miyazaki is one of my favorite movies and it has left a lasting impression on me. And so I had always sort of imagined what it might be like to play a game that takes place in an onsen or a hot spring as what we might know it as. And so that was really the origin of the idea and the motivation to wanting to create something for myself. And so uh, with that came the need to have an LLC formation and, and go through all the legalities to make sure that we can be 
eligible to receive various licenses and things like that. And so then Waking Oni Games was invented or generated. (laughs) (laughs) So how long uh, has it been since you started? It has existed, I would say, you know, from the the signing of legal documents for uh, like six or seven years. And Onsen Master was kind of a hobby project throughout that time period. And so it wasn't until two years ago, I believe, two, almost three years ago that we decided to take that project and, and actually pursue it as, you know, something of a, a an actual game, a game that we wanted to share with audiences, a game that we wanted to put up on Kickstarter for crowdfunding and see what the interest would be. Mm-hmm. And so very thankful that uh, in September of, of the year that we did Kickstarter 2019, that we, you know, it went successfully. So nice. Um, since then, thank you. Since then, yeah, we continued working, of course, maintaining full-time jobs and, and any other commitments outside of that to get this game out to audiences that were interested in it. Talk to me a little bit more about Onsen Master. For those that might not be familiar with sort of the concept you mentioned as being kind of a like a hot springs, like talk to me about what the game is about. Sure. I'll say I can't explain it without getting past the elevator pitch part. So it's a it's a hot spring strategy game about healing. You play as a character who has been tasked with managing their own bathhouse, their own hot spring. And that managing component uh, comes by way of various customers who will arrive to your hot spring. And they each have a, a different ingredient that they desire. And so it is your job as the the player to sort them into one of four baths that are located in the hot spring, locating the ingredient that matches to their needs and then mixing it up and tossing it in there with them. And so you play this sort of mix and match game while moving through different environments that may change in scale or layout. Hmm. So it sounds like it can also sort of be partially educational as well, because I'm assuming this is based off of how onsens actually operate. In a very broad stroke, some details are true, some details are not. I would say there isn't the component of somebody procuring an an ingredient for you and lofting that into the bath. (laughs) Um, What is true to reality is that when you go to an onsen, a hot spring is a naturally occurring, naturally heated water. And there are many towns and, and prefectures in Japan, across Japan, that have onsen and bathhouses, or, or I should say um, sento. So there's a difference there. Sento, or bathhouse, is artificially heated, and onsen, or hot spring, is naturally heated. Mm. And so it's like small detail. but it, So those are the types of things that really what I hope players will get out of the experience is that when they play Onsen Master, I hope that it will spark interest in wanting to find out what real onsen like or what real sento are like and learn about those. Another component in the game that I hope will spark interest in players is as you're playing through the game, you're visited by these spirits called yokai. And they are essentially personifications of the unexplainable. We might create, if we hear a, a creek in the night, we might say, oh, that is a, a creek monster that is responsible for making this noise. And so when you play Onsen Master, not only will various customers be arriving, but these various spirits that take the form of one that kind of looks like a turtle, one that looks like a skeleton, and so on, will also be visiting the Onsen. And they'll have a few, they'll come bearing with a couple antics to them. One might spill water all over the place, for example, or one might try to come after you and and grab you as another thing that you have to deal with while managing these different customers. I mean, it definitely sounds like you put a lot of thought and care into the game and, you know, with all of these different sort of mechanics and such. That sounds really cool. Thank you. Yes, it's definitely my experience in, I've spent a lot of my time learning about Japanese history and and culture and mythology. And so wanting to build a game that can spark that same interest and and hopefully lead others to wanting to educate themselves about what yokai are, for example, is really the the desire out of that. I think anyone that has kids under 15 probably knows what yokai are. (laughs) If they've seen yokai watch or something like Uh that, it's amazing how much like I don't even want to call it American shows because they're just Japanese shows that have been, in many cases, dubbed over. But there's so much anime from Japan that gets dubbed over that now are just 
in some cases, cultural staples in this country, like Pokemon, Dragon Ball Z, Sailor Moon, etc. But then there's a lot of newer shows like Yokai Watch and others that that's how people tend to find out about Japanese culture is through these different shows and through video games as well. I mean, I remember playing video games as a kid, and that's how I really learned about, I mean, small things about Japanese culture. I'd probably say I got more from anime, but video games definitely played a part in that as well, even through localization. Yeah, and I I really agree with that. We've got to say the the sort of subtext to Waking Yoni Games and Onsmaster and the projects that are to follow that are intended to explore specifically the intersection of Japanese and African-American culture, because there are many BIPOC individuals that have had their experience in childhood and, and through their adulthood tangent to all sorts of pop culture and media. But mine specifically intersects a lot with, with Japanese culture and continues to even in my adulthood being a board member at the Japanese Arts Foundation and teaching anime drawing classes. And so wanting to explore that and, and hopefully articulate that at my age now uh, has led me to learn that there are many Black individuals that also have that sort of intersection and in wanting to find representation in a media that doesn't necessarily originate from our culture is is a, is can be a challenge depending on the circumstance, but it has led to other outcomes and, and things like when we watch Dragon Ball Z, this is why we might code Piccolo as Black. Having those yeah. types of shared experiences with other Black individuals is something that's very specific. And so with Onsemaster and with other projects, I, I would really like to continue to explore that conversation and build content that is derived of anime and, and the pop culture that surrounds the medium, uh, but also insert people that look like us and, and be able to center that conversation a little bit more. Right around this time last year on the show, we had Arthel Isom. He's a, a black guy who owns a anime studio actually over in Japan called Day Art Stagio. I don't know yes, if you've heard I've of heard this of guy. This. Yeah. So a lot of what you're, you're talking about, and it's funny because this interview was literally up like about a year from now, a year ago from now. And he's, you know, what you're saying mirrors a lot of what he also said in terms of, you know, kind of working within the culture, but also working to kind of bridge that gap and sort of tell these stories in a way that is not only sort of, I would say, culturally relevant, but also is appealing to customers. So that makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Yes. I was just going to say hello to, to Arthur in a year ago. I, I wish we could cross paths, but I do. I love a lot of the work that uh, he and his studio are doing. Yeah. So what do you think it is that people misunderstand when it comes to being a game designer? Sure. I think the term game design can be a little bit obfuscated if you aren't readily in school and learning about what the role might entail. It isn't just thinking about, oh, how one might want to create a cool thing and just enacting on it. It can become a lot more granular than that. And, and there has to be, and I can explain further, but there has to be a willingness to want to pursue getting uh, very nitty gritty about details, but also hoping to drive and create certain, or I should say, elicit certain experiences out of the audience that you intend to interact with your your media. And so taking that to a game, let's say Mario or Final Fantasy, any of those things, everything that that you do in that game that you don't necessarily notice per se, you know, the reason why the text, the font looks a certain way, or the reason why, you know, when you when Mario jumps a very specific height, or uh, just how conveniently placed that height and that distance from when you jump off a ledge and land on a platform is just so far away or just close enough that it creates ease or difficulty. Those types of things are thought about by somebody else and labored over constantly to make sure that you as the player can like have ease of access or have experiences and difficulty, but not difficulty that's hard enough that turns you away from the game and makes you not want to play it. There has to be that sort of balance in wanting to engineer an experience that maybe makes you feel just close enough to a reward that you are now driven to want to achieve it. I will say that that's one component of game design. There are many ways to create experiences and engineer 
outcomes in a, in a way that you are trying to impart that on somebody. I am trying to stray away from falling into just spouting off nothing but buzzwords, uh, but <laughs> it really is. It really is that, you know, you, you're thinking about the player, you're thinking about what type of experience you would like to give them while also wanting to share entertainment and fun and cool things happening. And And maybe it's swords, maybe it's horses or fairies or robots, but also wanting to make sure that your vision for it all is concise among those components that you're trying to sort out. It sounds like there's a lot of testing that has to happen with game design. It's not just as as simple as Mario Maker or something like that, you know, but even that I think also, I love how Nintendo is kind of really abstracted a big part of the game design process when it comes to you know, a game like Mario Maker or like this new game that they have called like Game Garage or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It make it seem pretty easy because you're just dragging and dropping sprites onto a canvas. But there's so much logic and testing that has to go behind that to make sure that it's it's playable, it's enjoyable, that you're guiding, hopefully that you're guiding the player along and you're making sure that they're having an enjoyable experience as well. Absolutely. And what I really love about both of those software is that they create accessibility to individuals who may otherwise not have the background in programming or have the background in 3D modeling or 2D art or everything else that comes along with creating a game. You know, there's so many resources there that they can, as you said, kind of drag and drop and and immediately get a reaction on whether or not it works. And I think those types of systems are great because it allows burgeoning creators and players to be able to explore those limitations and and hopefully build something out of them. And and yes, test, test, test away. Yeah. Now, this might be a bit of a, a easy question because I think anyone that's grown up in the United States in the past 30 plus years has been exposed to video games. But tell me about kind of your history with games. Like, were you always into design and video games like tell me about that yeah my experience in games has has definitely been lifelong i grew up with nintendo and sega and sega dreamcast and etc leading all the way up to now and so but wanting to contribute to games wasn't always a component that it wasn't always something that i had considered there was sort of a disconnect you bought games or you received games as a gift, you loaded them up, you played them to to the end of the credits, and then you looked for the next one. But I, for a long time, never really bridged the gap that somebody else was behind a computer. Somebody had labored over this to give the experience that I'm now having, you know, in my bedroom or on the couch. When that happened, I think that's when things really, really shifted for me in wanting to envision creating worlds that I could interact in, that other people could interact with, and what that might be like. Prior to that, my background has always been in drawing and in illustration. And so I used to always want to create comic books and create cartoons. And, and so I spent a lot of time drawing and imagining worlds and imagining characters. Getting into high school, I think that's when things started to transition. And I understood that there was a pathway to being able to create these games that I was playing on PlayStation 1 and 2 at the time. And then I started to re-engage with these worlds and imagine them as virtual spaces and seek out opportunities as we start getting into university and how I might be able to achieve that. Yeah, I remember, like you said, growing up with Nintendo and Sega, especially if you were a child of the 80s, I would say even like a child of like the early 90s. I mean, it was inescapable. It wasn't, I mean, I don't even know if it's really so much now because kids have like the internet to contend with and social media and stuff. But like, it's hard to really understate just how much of a vice grip Nintendo had over your childhood. If you were, mm-hmm. if you were like a child of the eighties or the early nineties, like there was television, there were video games, there was breakfast cereal, there was clothes. Like <laughs> you really could not escape it. And I would say Nintendo probably more so. Say probably more so than Sega, but you know, even still, as both of those systems grew in popularity, like you really could not avoid the console wars, I should say. Like you really kind of had to be one camp or another. And games often would come out for one and then come out for the other one later. And yeah. it's just amazing how much of that really is uh is of course sort of the foundation for what we see now in gaming, but also what it's done is it's helped to create 
a whole new generation now of game designers and people that want to work in games and comics and sort of mm-hmm. similar fields like that. Absolutely. And and I got to ask, you mentioned <laughs> the console war. Which side did you find yourself on, rather intentional or unintentional uh, growing <laughs> up? So definitely Team Nintendo, 100%. I had mm-hmm. a Game Boy. I had a, a regular. I remember when the NES came out in 80, I think it came out in 85, I think. 85, 86. And I got it, me and my brother, I have an older brother. We got it. And the, uh, the cartridge was like the combination Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt. So you'd put yeah. it in and then you choose which one you wanted to, to play and, and whatever. It was Nintendo for a long time. My cousin, I have a first cousin uh, named Jeff, and he had a Genesis. And so I got to go over his house and play a little bit of like Sega. I always thought the three button controller was really <laughs> weird. I didn't quite understand that. Like I want to, I'm going to go back to Nintendo where the buttons have an even amount of numbers. Like I, that makes more <laughs> sense to me. Yeah. You yeah. know, than, <laughs> than trying to do, trying to do that. But yeah, mostly Nintendo. I think I've had every Nintendo system except the 64. Okay. Oh, yeah. and the Virtual Boy. I don't think anyone really had the Virtual Boy, but I remember when the Virtual Boy came out because it was around, I want to say 94, 95. And the Walmart in our town had one as a display, so I did get to play it, but I've never had one. But yeah, I was firmly, firmly Team Nintendo <laughs> until probably around college. And then like I diverted to like Dreamcast, although, well, someone on, on one of my friend's floors had a 64 and we just played GoldenEye all the time. Yeah, you got yeah. to play GoldenEye. Absolutely. Um, my upbringing did find itself seated in the Sega route and it was a bit of the opposite for me where my first cousin was the one who had the super Nintendo and the the virtual boy. And I will not spend any time just discussing how VR has always tried, has been an exploratory tangent to video games for so long with something like the virtual boy and, and seeing where it is now to a, a device like the Oculus. But yeah, Sega led me to Sega Dreamcast and all of those, unfortunately, short-lived experiences on a very cool system. Yeah, um, I headed down the path of PlayStation, and I got to say, it I probably never looked back. I've loved PlayStation ever since. What was the game that hooked you into gaming? Ooh, Final Fantasy IX. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I definitely played plenty of games prior to that, but Final Fantasy IX and just the PlayStation 1 console in general, I think, is bookmarked as a significant part of my life. I think I played tons and tons of games on the PlayStation, and there were so many, when you think of the time period, this is why I love PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 especially, but when you think of the time period of both of these consoles, There's so much development and exploration on both of the consoles from the beginning of their release to the end of their cycle when the next generation of that platform is coming out. And so Mm -hmm. looking at a a title that released on the beginning of PlayStation and looking at a title that released at the end of PlayStation 1's time period is significant. There's really vast differences. You, You find games that explored with voiceover and games that have walls and walls of text, games with sprites, games with Final Fantasy VII blocky 3D bodies and, you know, everything else. So it was a time. It was a time that all these different companies were trying out new things. I mean, they're always trying new things. There's always iteration and development. But something felt really cool about that transition to 3D and and everybody trying to figure that out at the same time. The game that hooked me into gaming, there's a few. I think if I think about what was on the regular Nintendo the game that probably hooked me was, it's a very rare choice. Mm-hmm. There was this board game on NES called Anticipation. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't. <laughs> Look up Anticipation NES on YouTube. I'm sure there's there's probably videos of it. But I remember I would check that game out from, uh, well, we had a blockbuster eventually, but we had back home this little place called Movie Gallery. And I would okay. check out Anticipation or I get my mom to check out Anticipation. Let me correct that. To check out Anticipation every two weeks or so and keep playing it. And it's essentially like a, I don't know, like a a Pictionary style game Got it. where it's like four players. You're either a trumpet, an ice cream cone, a pair of pink high-heeled shoes, or a teddy bear. <laughs> yeah, I and, see that now. And there's like these different board configurations and 
you roll the die and you land on a certain color. And then there's like this pencil that just starts drawing and you have to guess what it is that it's drawing. And usually like at the beginning levels, they'll give you some sort of hints, like the number of letters or something. So you kind of get a sense of it. But then as you, or the category, I should say that it's drawing. But then as you go up to the higher boards, there's no clues, no category. Like it just starts drawing and you have to figure (laughs) it out and you have to get four of the different colors to sort of proceed to the next round. And I loved that game. I think my brother hated it, but I loved that game. (laughs) And that game sort of hooked me into like, oh, this is cool. Like this is like a board game, but it's on video games. Like that blew my mind. And then I'd say also, was this on NES or SNES? So this is on SNES. The SNES game that hooked me was also a Final Fantasy title. It's Final Fantasy 2, which is Final Fantasy 4 in the, you mm-hmm. know, sort of Japanese line of games. But that game, I mean, it sunk its fangs into me deep. Great. And yeah. it is to this day, I don't know if it's my favorite Final Fantasy title. Like it's top two. It's top two. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I love that game like no other. Cause that game, aside from just the story aspect of it, and you had the double crossing character and all this sort of stuff. Also, it's kind of my foray into music. Like I really liked the music and tried to learn how to play the music. I had a little keyboard or whatever, and I would record it on my little tape recorder and then go yeah. back and try to play it on my, on my keyboard and stuff like that. But yeah, Final Fantasy two and anticipation. Those were the two games that like got me into, into games just like, Oh man, this is such a great, great medium to like, tell stories in because with final fantasy 2 i had never i had never run across a story like that before right and it's like on this thing and you play as these people and it's like what is this it was my first role-playing game too like it was great absolutely great that's a that's a really great story and it it, yeah it that's i think that's why final fantasy 9 sits with me so well and and again there were plenty of games that i definitely interacted with leading up to that i fondly remember playing rocket knight on Sega, which was a really cool side-scrolling, incredibly difficult game. Wow. I think a lot of us have memories with titles like Aladdin and The Lion King and Animaniacs on that system as well. But it, yeah, it wasn't until PlayStation that um, and Final Fantasy IX that, uh, it, similar to, again, similar to what you said about 4, the the character, the story, the, the very imaginative world that is being set in front of you. And it just raises the bar on oh, this is what fantasy can be when yeah. pri- prior to this, I, it's just been Dungeons and Dragons and medieval shows and medieval fantasy. But right. uh, that, that gave a, it presented an entirely new world. Yeah. Or you're like Mario or Sonic. You're just sort of playing yeah. this linear left to right up and down sort of thing. And like Final Fantasy really came along and just like, I don't even want to say it shattered expectations. It certainly shattered my perception of mm-hmm. what can be done now, you know, with the medium. And that was, my God, that was 1992, I think. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing what they were able to accomplish with so little back then, just in terms of like the, the technology to tell Absolutely. such a vast story and with such, you know, few kind of elements. I mean, I think now what <laughs> with computers and with software and everything, there's no telling what you can create, even just on your own without having to do it through a, like a big studio. Yeah. We have. So many possibilities now. And I think developers, AAA, all the way to indie, we continue to share and show reinvention within this space. And I love marveling at it. Every time there's a new game trailer or game event that is coming with a handful of announcements, I cannot help but tune in because I know it's going to come up with some indie game or or some other studio that's revealing an experience that you just didn't imagine could happen uh, with a controller in your hand or, or with something like an Oculus VR headset. Yeah. I'm trying to get more into Oculus. I got one fairly recently and I've sort of been, you know, just kind of playing around with it, sitting on the couch or playing around the living room, but I need to get more into, into the VR experience because I know there's probably some really great stuff there. I'm trying, I'm trying as well. Uh, (laughs) and I think right now felt like a time that was okay to leap in because the space is starting to hit its stride and starting, oh, it's, it's hit its stride and it's definitely developing and and creating all these cool experiences now that 
Mm-hmm. The devices have so much fidelity to them, which was always limitation leading up to what we have nowadays. Now, now there's three, four different pieces of hardware that you can acquire and, and create that experience for yourself and dedicate an entire room to VR if you wanted to. So I do have an Oculus and I'm, I'm dabbling on the store. I got to say, I'm very interested in a title called Demio, I believe is the name, where you are essentially my favorite part of D&D, where you have the D&D dungeon. You know, you have your character sheet, but you have a miniature representation of your D&D dungeon in front of you. And you're playing through this campaign with little figurines that are an indication of your character and your party members. Well, there's a VR version of that now. And I got to say, the way I'm passively just recruiting people to want to play that game some handful of time from now is is kind of my, my side mission, but it looks very interesting. Now, you went to school for design. You went to uh, Columbus College of Art and Design. You eventually graduated from Kent State. When you think back on like your education studying design, how much of that has really kind of helped you out now as a game designer? I think some of it some of it came from not getting the experience that I was hoping to have. And some of it came from gaining way more than I even thought could come of it. Getting into university at that time, the discoverability of spaces that were teaching games was still kind of new. Yeah. Uh, there was, I think, a lot of advertisements around this time for the Art Institute and going to the Art Institute of Pittsburgh or, or whichever state version that it had and trying to explore where am I going to get that? Where am I going to get the experience at the risk of loans and, and everything else? Where will I find my seat in in all of that? And so, so bizarre. I remember going to the Art Institute of Chicago, or sorry, the Art Institute of Pittsburgh for a preview. Uh, they invited, you could register for like a summer preview camp and uh, stay there for, I think it was like three days or three or four days or something like that. But the idea was it was to introduce students to the campus, their experience it, get them hands-on experience in playing around with game engines and look, kind of tantalizing or, or giving the movie preview of, of what game development might be. Instead, what that experience was for me was connecting with a bunch of very cool students, but ultimately never getting that experience. We, I remember distinctly, we went into this game lab and the teacher who was supposed to be providing preview of education on Unreal Engine was absent. They were just gone and nobody knew where they were. And so the entire class just played Unreal Tournament. And (laughs) that's what we did. (laughs) I remember thinking, this is kind of cool, but this isn't what I came here for. Yeah. So I was I was so frustrated, because I thought I came in, the veil was kind of yanked away in, in what I was supposed to expect when I got there. Uh, So yeah, I ultimately went to Columbus College of Art and Design, I pursued illustration, I said to myself that I'm going to find entry into games doing concept art. I still was feeling really keen about 3D modeling and and wanting to do something with that. And so I remember asking my advisor if I could switch to 3D modeling because I wanted to pursue game development. And they said, well, we only have 3D animation. We don't support game development here. (laughs) And I thought it was just another moment that was kind of disillusioned, you know, and I'm going, ah, man, like, am I thinking about this wrong? Like, there's got to be other spaces where people are really driving for this outcome that they that they too want to create games that they too want to 3D model and and rig characters for video games. I, I love Pixar films, but that's not where I'm trying to land. And so I transferred to Shawnee State University. That is where I was introduced to a really kind of this really amazing game development program that was uh, still in its earliest stages, but the community of teachers and students really brought an experience together that continues to thrive today. I think if you go to their website, they're doing all sorts of really cool in-university events to support their students and and give them that experience that I think a lot of us were going for at that time. So shout outs to them. I ultimately ended up transferring uh, yet another time and graduating out of Kent State University with a degree in, I don't remember the name, but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, graduating out of there. And, and here we are with some gaps and other stories in between there. Yeah. 
I would say, though, that what you've mentioned, though, is actually, you know, at least from my experience with talking with others on this show, is pretty common because the technology in the industry changes so quickly that the schools aren't really able to kind of keep up and be able to have curriculum and stuff like that. And then, as you say, because it's so new, different schools are going to have different just types of programs. It's not really, you know, it's not really standardized. Like you can go to any college in the country and learn English, but you can't go to any college in the country and learn game design. Like different programs are definitely going to be just better suited to what's currently in the industry. They might have a better alumni program. Like there could be a whole bunch of other things. There's a guy I had on the show. This was, I don't know, maybe like 2017 or so. His name is uh, Michael Hollander. Do you remember the 90s show VR Troopers? Yes. He was the black guy on VR Troopers. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's a game designer now. Oh, wow. Wow. What a track record. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> show, that show was amazing. You know, and there's a, a side note, but the genre of tokusatsu, VR Troopers, Power Rangers, Kamen Rider, all of that stuff. It's a really cool story. I think I saw it on Netflix, just the whole process of how that gets localized and mm-hmm. arrives to us. And then this relationship that we have with, I think it's the, I forgot the company that licensed Power Rangers here, but they have a specific relationship with the original source that they are allowed to take the fight scenes and re-edit it to add in actors from the US. And Oh, uh, and, and that's uh, Haim Saban, right? Yes, that's the one. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so if you end up watching shows like VR Troopers, shows like Kamen Rider or Power Rangers, the original content has a completely different story, but mm-hmm. the battles will be the same in a lot of ways, or they'll be you'll recognize certain battles or certain confrontations experienced in the US version. And so cool thing there. But yeah, that's amazing. Uh, what a what a life to live to go from VR Troopers to game designer. Yeah. But a lot of what I remember him saying from that interview was about how he kind of had to jump from place to place to really sort of almost like cobble together the skills that he knew he was going to need once he got on in the industry, because one school maybe didn't have this or another school had it. So he's sort of that process of transferring. And for him, it sounded like he kind of just learned more working in the field as opposed to going to school to prepare to be a designer. Yeah, I relate to that in a lot of ways that I think in that time period when you you said that there were a lot of universities trying to figure out what was doing how to do it correctly I think similar to who you just mentioned I'm, I'm sorry that uh, what was their name again oh Michael Hollander M- Michael thank you yeah. similar to Michael's experience we weren't the only ones kind of knowing that I think we could see that universities were also trying to figure this out and we're trying to figure out where can we get the best education with limited resources as far as research goes. And there, it's not like there was a university out here just being championed by, by others in the industry saying, ah, I graduated from here and this is the space that taught me the best. Uh, you know, everybody was kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Unfortunately, for some people who are seeking education in that space, you flew by the seat at the risk of your wallet. So there is, <laughs> uh, there is that aspect there. And, and, you know, you landed somewhere and you said, this is close. So Maybe this is the one that I'll go with because I don't want to go through registration again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He said the same thing. It's It can get expensive doing all that transferring from school to school, especially because it's such a specialized field, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you, you know, freelance for a few companies after you graduated from Kent State, and it looked like your, your first sort of big long-term game design gig, you were at uh, William Cheer Studio. Is that right? That's right. And kind of touching back to uh, what we were just talking about, after graduating, it was trying to still trying to find placement in the industry, trying to figure out what to do with my portfolio and and learning how it stood up against other candidates that were candidates that were getting positions in 3D modeling and so on. And so that process led me to having to again, kind of reevaluate where I was and pursue continued learning, taking to, to YouTube and books and everything else to continue to make sure that I'm developing content that was on par with what the industry was asking for. I had a lot of difficulty trying to find career placement. And so this is where I began to seek 
dabbling in creating my own worlds, you know, playing around with engines like Unity, but constantly going to events and networking with other individuals whom were already in there and already creating and developing projects, sharing my portfolio and ultimately landing, you know, freelance gigs from time to time. What do you remember most about working at that studio? With William Cheer and, and the the other team members, everything was fun and, and it was great. Uh, you know, it was like we mostly communicated digitally because people were across time zones and different locations in the U.S. And so, yeah, it was very just kind of casual. Hey, you know, can you model this or animate this thing? And I had a lot of fun being able to contribute to Manifold Garden, which was the the title that ended up releasing. And so my primary role there was creating a lot of environment objects. There are a lot of doors that I did the animations for and some other objects that are throughout that space. Mm. Now, I know we're recording this right now at the time when there's a lot of news actually in the video game industry, particularly around uh, a certain company known as uh, Activision Blizzard, which people may know from uh, some of the big games that they've put out like, oh God, I'm blanking, <laughs> like Crash Bandicoot and, and things of that nature. I'm curious, you know, as a black man that's in this industry, have you ever been privy to any sort of discrimination, just working at studios or showing your portfolio or things like that? Like, what sort of things were you sort of surprised about when you really started to kind of get out in the industry? Yeah, I think most of all that came down to finding an entry level position, trying to weigh the quality of my work against other potential candidates for positions that I was applying for. And as an outcome to that, not finding a lot of opportunities where I felt like I was good enough to apply to a lot of spaces. I received no a lot, a lot when I was at the beginning of trying to become a 3D artist. And I would oftentimes turn to other portfolio websites spaces like ArtStation, what we have today, to look at the quality of my work and, and again, like weigh that against what other people were doing, other people in roles that I was trying to apply to. And it just never made sense to me why I wasn't even getting past the interview phase. You know, I tried going to job fairs and sharing portfolio and receiving very like poker faced feedback on the content that I was sharing. And then would watch peers and, and other people who had also exited university gain positions. And it wasn't fair to myself or to them to want to uh, go, well, now I got to look at their portfolio and see what did they do and what did I not do? It's never fun to have to draw those types of comparisons, but I, I couldn't help it at that time because I wanted so badly to be able to be in this space and really, really had this dream that is that I've, I can the veil has very, very much been lifted to since then. But I used to dream <laughs> so much of, yeah, sitting next to a colleague in, in a game studio and working on 3D models and discussing, you know, which piece of armor should this character have or, or stuff like that. Back then, it was the labor of video games was something that was romanticized. And I not only has that, but the space in general received continues to receive the scrutiny that it should to redefine what it means to work within that space, that creating games and creating experiences should not come at the sacrifice of your time in a way that is a detriment to you by way of, you know, how individuals used to romanticize overworking themselves in video games. Um, and that is still a narrative that we're trying to separate from. And relating to what you had said with Activision Blizzard, the constant harassment that women and other marginalized folks experience within these industries are other things that continue to need the scrutiny that they are receiving in order to hopefully get the change that we're all asking for. Yeah. This might be a, I don't know if this is a, a good follow-up for this, but I'll just throw it out there. Do you think that that is why we're starting to see so many indie like developers and games out there because they're just not meshing with this sort of, triple a title big game studio kind of culture they're just striking out on their own and doing their own thing yeah I, I think there's many layers to to why 
there there's there's many layers to why indie developers create the games that they do one certainly is one is absolutely they themselves could not find placement within the industry one is we're not ever fairly represented within the industry one is the experiences that were being set on store shelves weren't the experiences that they wanted to have and that just the word experience can mean so many different things in terms of gameplay or narrative or style and aesthetic i think all of those things motivate indie developers to create their own games and i think that's just as you said that's absolutely why we have there's so many of us out here now creating cool things and now there's access so many more avenues to be able to access the experiences that they are delivering with platforms like itch.io for people who just want to create something small or or fairly sizable and distribute that out to their own audience. We now have publishers and platforms that vocalize their support for indies and now have a much more visible pipeline for indie developers to be able to release games on spaces like the Switch and so on. So I hope and I always have my fingers crossed that that will continue to grow in the way that it has and that more indie developers will be able to receive the support that they want. What games are you currently playing right now? Mm, I was revisiting Final Fantasy VII Remake after purchasing it when it came out and then not touching it for a long, long time. The announcement of the, I think it's called Intergrade DLC, well, it was enough for me to, it sparked motivation to want to return to the game. And I said, you know what, we're going to finish this. Uh, so yes, I've been casually pursuing that. And I think I'm about three quarters of the way complete with it finally. But aside from that, I spend a little bit of my time streaming on Twitch, various stealthy games. It's another genre of games that I just really, really take to and enjoy playing. So titles like Thief and my, one of my favorite games is Thief Deadly Shadows, which is this older medieval fantasy stealth game where you play as this, this thief called Garrett. Or yeah, almost said the main character of The Witcher, Geralt, <laughs> <laughs> mixing him up there. But great game. Uh, Immersive Sims is the genre. So other games like Hitman or Dishonored, any of those things where you're presented with sort of a level and you have to decide how you are going to solve the level and get to from point A to point B are some of my favorite types of games to play. So I'll dabble with one main game and then kind of pursue other ones in the background. And so that's what I've been doing. Okay. Yeah. How about yourself? Oh, what am I playing now? Oh, that's a good question because, and I said this before we recorded, I am really big on buying games and then never playing them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a collector at this point. So the games I'm currently playing now. So on PS4, I am, I don't know, I guess about halfway through Persona 5 Royal, I think. I think I'm halfway through. I'm in July. Because, you know, the game starts out in April, then it like goes to, I think, mm -hmm. January or something. But Royal has like a third semester. So I think I'm about maybe not half. I'm probably about a third of the way through now that I think about it, because I'm in the summer. So I'm playing Persona 5 Royal. And then on my Switch, I have Animal Crossing New Horizons. I feel like I'm just tending to that, like, I don't know, neglected child. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've gotten my island to a point where I'm not going to change anything. My villagers are at a point where... They're not moving out. Mm -hmm. So my island is just kind of in stasis. And because Nintendo is not really rolling out a whole bunch of new content for it, I just log in every day, speak to people, dig up fossils, clean yeah. up the island. I just bought the great Ace Attorney Chronicles, which I look forward to getting into that this weekend. Great. great. Um, I've been looking forward to that one. Yeah, I'm looking to get into that pretty soon. And uh, that's what I have now. I mean, I'm a big fan of puzzle games. So I also just recently bought, I think it's Picross S5, I think is the latest one in the series. Okay. So I bought that. Haven't played it yet, but I know eventually I will. Picross is just one of those kind of games you just, I don't know, you play it in the airport, you play it while you're waiting for the train or something like that. It's kind of one of those games yeah. you can easily pick up and put down because it's it's a puzzle game. Have you heard of Picross before? I have. I have not played it. Puzzle games are... You know, honestly, most puzzles I, I usually keep to something that's kind of like haptic. And so, yeah, they, though, though I'm not opposed to them, uh, they're usually not my go to. But yeah, I've, I've heard of Picross. And so, yeah, but I didn't know that they released a, a new iteration. Oh, yeah. Jupiter cranks these games out like every three months. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they always have 150 puzzles or more, like at least 150 to 200 puzzles. They just crank them out regularly. It's kind of insane. Wow, like, yeah, I think tough. they just recently announced there's going to be a Picross with, uh, I think, Sega and Master Collection. So, like, it's going to have Sonic sprites and things of that nature, Puyo Puyo, that kind of thing. I saw it and I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy that. Because wow. also the games yeah. are like 10 bucks. So they're like really cheap. They have a ton of replay value and they're long games. I mean, each puzzle is maybe anywhere from like a few seconds to maybe an hour, depending on the size of it and putting it all together. But yeah, that's sort of what I'm playing right now. I'm looking forward to what did I pre order? I pre ordered Metroid Dread. I pre ordered. I think I pre-ordered No More Heroes 3, and I also yeah. pre-ordered Advance Wars 1 and 2, the remakes okay. that are coming out, because I love, I love some Advance Wars. I recently bought, not that I'm showing my age here, but I recently <laughs> bought a, there's this guy on Instagram that does these custom Game Boy Advance builds, That's and I mean, they are, cool. they are pristine i'm not gonna say how much i paid for it i paid too much for it but like they are pristine <laughs> and i bought one of those and i bought some games off ebay because i was like i love the form factor of it plus i just love those old games and now that advanced wars one and two is coming out on the switch i was like oh yeah i'm getting that absolutely mm-hmm. no questions yeah. that there's a couple of games that like i don't even have to think about it my credit card's already out like a, <laughs> <laughs> like like magic like i don't even have to think about it like oh yeah i'm getting that so yeah, that's sort of what I'm what I'm playing right now. Cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, those are definitely some exciting things to look forward to. No More Heroes especially is one that I am a big fan of that. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've been looking forward to for some time. It is on the tip of my tongue. No, I oh, um Elden Ring from Software. Oh. So the new okay. the new from Software title has been one that is definitely on my list. Definitely looking forward to that and then Deathloop from Arcane Studios, which again, talking about how I was a, a fan of immersive sims and, and games that include the option of stealth, the creators of Dishonored are releasing a new title. And uh, this one looks like a lot of fun. So nice. I'll be getting that one right away. Now, and of course, you're, you know, creating your own game Onsen Master, but what video game would you love to see developed one day? Oh, when it comes to the games that we experience now, you know, I was kind of touching on the the arc of indie games and how there are so many developers who have taken to their own to create experiences that they aren't seeing. I would love, love to see a game that centers just like an Afro fantasy or black fantasy or like Afro futurist game that is at the scale of a Square Enix title. If I could play a game that feels like Final Fantasy 15 or any of those titles with that sort of fidelity and story and amount of hours dedicated to creating an original world and high fantasy narrative, but it centers on black people and, and the genre of Afrofuturism. I think that would be phenomenal that, that I would pre-order that (laughs) before, you know, I would somehow hear about it before the studio made formal announcement and be sitting at their front door, just saying, I'm ready. Just hand me the disc whenever you're done. (laughs) Yeah. Now, say someone's listening to this, they're hearing your story and everything, and they want to become a game designer themselves. What sort of like resources or things would you tell them to sort of check out to try to start that journey? Yeah. So we briefly talked about things like Mario Maker and the Nintendo's, I believe it's the Garage. I don't I don't remember the, the full name of it, but resources like that. Going back to PlayStation 1, there were games like RPG Maker and stuff like that. There are avenues to be able to create games and use systems that are available now. They may not, you may not be able to completely realize the version of the game that you are seeking, but I think it's important to remember that vision, that lofty vision that we all have for the game we dream of creating is an iterative iterative process. We have to create the small games and the other experiences to get ourselves there. And so use these platforms, use these systems. Dreams is another one from Media Molecule, creators of Little Big Planet, where you can now create your own assets, your own experiences using their platform. That might be one avenue. Another one is the Unity engine that we use for Onsen Master is free. 
And there are a lot of resources, not only on YouTube, which I affectionately call YouTube University, but uh, Unity itself offers courses that are available for free for individuals who have no background in either programming or creating or 3D modeling, an avenue to be able to get access to those. One of the most important things that I want to acknowledge in saying all of that is the availability of resources is not equal. It's not across the board for everybody. And not everybody has the computer or the game hardware to be able to leap right into creating those things. I imagine that if they do, a lot of the times they're already exploring those possibilities already, you know, taking to Google and figuring out which one of these might be the application or software for them. And so if pencil and paper are what is available for you, creating tabletop games and board games is game design. And I always think to myself that if it works on paper, it's going to work digitally. We just have to trade some of those paper systems for code and some of those cards or drawn assets for 3D models or 2D pictures and and et cetera. But practice game design, creating board games between yourself and your family, creating card games. These are ways that still lead you to becoming a game designer because you're creating experiences that you're trying to elicit that from somebody else and have these sorts of fun moments with other people and design those fun moments. Use that, use that as a platform. And so those are the things that I would say for for individuals who are looking to explore game design, looking to leap into it, take one of those things and just try a little bit every day because those moments that you spend in it and doing it, that you're just getting closer and closer to it every moment. And it's going to take time. So, yeah. When you look at the work that you're doing now and, you know, you look back at your career and you think back to like young Derek, who was getting into Final Fantasy nine and, and was really starting to learn about game design and everything. Are you where you wanted to be at this stage in your life? I am. Um, this is like one of those things that, uh, it, very recently I was, I was all sorts of emotional about it and stuff because I was talking to my mom whom she is my number one hero and she has helped create an environment that has allowed me to thrive creatively and watch me evolve into the person that I am now and have the hardships and the hiccups that have led through to that. When it comes to creating games and what I would like to be doing in this space, with Onsen Master on the way out and seeking to fund our next project and most recently stepping into Northwestern University, I'd say I think I hit everything on Young Derek's checklist. And so the only other thing left is to make sure that everything that I've earned sustains and that I can extend it to another Young Derek or young individual out there who has their own checklist brewing. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of what kind of work do you want to be doing? I want to stay in education. I, I want to be able to continue contributing to Northwestern and hopefully help build a space that is comprehensive. Right now, I'm just one individual within the department who will be providing games education. And I would love to find ways to collaborate with other faculty and student across, you know, like uh, interdisciplinary opportunities for faculty and students to be able to share experiences. We, I'll be in like the, the radio TV film department. So there's a lot of creativity that's across these spaces. But the other thing is uh, wanting to bring in other uh, faculty or hopefully be able to advocate for bringing in other faculty to touch on other experiences and facets of game development. There's music, there's narrative, there's so many other components to be considered. Uh, and I think developing a space that feels conducive for all of those is really important to highlight for burgeoning creators or writers or musicians. As far as Waking Oni Games goes, I own Semester is not the only title that I want to build. And I want to develop a studio that can create games and create them sustainably. And when I say sustainably, I mean support every individual at their choice of part-time or full-time and you know, not have to uh, burden anybody with the decision of balancing life in a part-time job and a freelance gig on top of that. I, I hope that that this game studio can be a space that somebody can not only lean on for support, but feel as though they are 
contributing to the type of games that they want to see represented as well. And just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and your studio and your game and everything? Where can they find that online? Yeah. So for the games, uh, that is like waking up in the morning, wakingonigames.com. I can be found as Waking Oni on Twitter. And those are primarily the two main spaces that you can find us interacting between. Uh, there's a Waking Oni Games Twitter as well. And I mentioned earlier that I stream on Twitch, sharing not only gameplay, but game development from time to time under the name Waking Oni. Sounds good. Well, Derek Fields, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for, I mean, one, sharing the work that you're already doing through your studio and the game that you're creating. I just have a soft spot in my heart for like indie game designers. Cause I just think that's, it's so cool that you all get to do this <laughs> kind of stuff. And even just like the, the black community around gaming is so good to see. I mean, mm-hmm. there's developers, there's designers, there's, there's musicians, there's artists, you know, game artists, voiceover, et cetera. It's just so good to see all of that. But then also to really kind of hear about your story of getting into it and the type of games that you want to see out there in the world. I hope that this interview is a way to introduce what you're doing to our audience so more people can discover what it is that you do and hopefully can help support your work. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Big thanks to Derek Fields, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Derek and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. It's sure to be a creative experience like no other, plus it is 100% free. Yep, all free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention that it was free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or better yet, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.